This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. This episode of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast is one we hope you find interesting because it's about the child welfare professionals who spend their day serving children and families. Today, we're talking about dealing with the stress of working within child welfare and how agencies are trying to assess and mitigate the impacts of that stress, referred to as secondary traumatic stress. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Oates with Information Gateway. We're going to share a conversation between three professionals who for the past few years have been working to address secondary traumatic stress, including their efforts to recognize it, mitigate it, and create a more positive work environment. What they are learning is when child welfare professionals are able to reduce the impact of secondary traumatic stress, they can dedicate more energy and have more positive attitudes toward their work. And this enhances the entire agency's ability to serve families and drive to more positive outcomes. Today, we're going to hear from Dr. Jim Henry, the co-founder and director of the Children's Trauma Assessment Center at Western Michigan University, where they've been developing trainings to increase trauma-informed care. During the last decade, Jim's teams developed a secondary trauma training that focuses on understanding the impact of secondary trauma, grief, and building resiliency. Jim is joined by Andrea Foch, the trauma care coordinator for Larimer County, Colorado. Andrea launched a secondary traumatic stress training across her county a few years ago, which is now expanded across the state. And Luther DeVell is part of the conversation. Luther is a director with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, covering a few counties in mid-Michigan. They've implemented some interesting initiatives that have improved both workplace culture and outcomes. These three came together on the phone to share their experiences. There's a lot of good information and some great examples of actions that managers and supervisors can take into their workplace or even for caseworkers to suggest to their leaders. Once the conversation is done, we'll come back and give you a little bit more information. But for now, here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, Dr. Jim Henry, Andrea Foch, and Luther Lavelle. Greetings, everybody. My name's Jim Henry. And I'm the director of the Southwest Michigan Children's Trauma Assessment Center at Western Michigan University. We have a trauma center here that I direct. And prior to that, I spent 17 years in child protective services as a worker and a supervisor. And in this process, I was very challenged by the now coined phrase, secondary traumatic stress. And so part of our work here at the trauma center is recognizing and addressing secondary traumatic stress um, in several places across the country, but most importantly in Michigan and Colorado where we have significant projects. So I'm going to pass it on to our two guests to introduce themselves. Luther, why don't you start? Hi, thank you. My name is Luther Lovell, and I am the director for the Michigan Health Department of Health and Human Services for Macosta and Osceola counties, uh, two counties that uh, are pretty rural in nature in mid-Michigan. Andrea? Yes, and hi, I'm Andrea. I'm the trauma care coordinator out in Larimer County, Colorado. We are a county, a mid-sized county, where child population is about 69,000 
and we are uh, encompass Fort Collins, Loveland, Estes Park area, and we are part of the Children, Youth, and Families Division, which we have roughly about 140 staff. Great. So we're very excited um, to share what have been, I think, significant developments in actually operationalizing an understanding of secondary traumatic stress so that it is being utilized as um, a phenomenon to address within these two counties in very different ways. So, Luther, I'm going to start with you. Why don't you define how you all at your county, and specifically you as director, became interested in secondary traumatic stress? And in terms of looking at that, how that is contextualized in the larger effort that may be going on in the state of Michigan? Well, you know, actually, there's an interesting journey uh, in our endeavor uh, to become a more trauma, have a more trauma-informed child welfare practice. We came to learn quite quickly that if we truly wanted to make change for the traumatized children we were working with, we needed to address the parents' trauma. And after all, the parent is the one who we hold responsible for creating an environment that's more conducive to the child's healing. And without their self-awareness of their own trauma, they would significantly be limited their ability to do so. Taking that a step further, we started to notice that if we're expecting that of the parents, what are we expecting of our staff and what are we seeing in our staff? We started to notice that many of the behaviors from our own staff were manifestations of their own unrecognized and unresolved secondary trauma. At the time, we had already kind of been on our own journey to study everything we could about how to create an optimum environment, culture and climate, if you will, to best support staff in doing the work they do. And it was interesting. When we looked at the latest research into the brain science surrounding true engagement and motivation of staff, we noticed that a number of the elements the experts indicated were necessary to cultivate an engaged employee were identical to the elements research suggested were necessary to build resiliency in child welfare staff. Great. When did you start this in terms of how long ago and where have you now journeyed to in being able to actually operationalize the idea, the concepts into the staff um, daily environment? You know, our, our work in trauma in general started probably five years ago, uh, thanks uh, thanks to CTAC and, and yourself, Dr. Henry. Uh, we, you know, slowly, we, we kind of put the cart before the horse. We started working with... Uh, uh, trauma in children and families before working in our in, in the trauma area in our own workers, and we've realized that that we have had we to do over again, we would have redone that. We really started integrating the secondary trauma approach, the lens in our management efforts uh, within the last few years. So, Luther, why don't you share the actual what you have all done with leadership and how that looks in your county? Okay. Well, you know, first and foremost, we realized we had to make support of our staff our top priority. I mean, there's so many studies out there. Dr. Gleason has a wonderful study, which I won't go into, but it says essentially that the, higher, the, the better you treat your staff, the higher culture and climate you have in your office, the better long-term outcomes for the children and families served by your, by your office. And we also know it, it improves uh, retention. Uh, they have a better uh, quality of life, your employees. And so we started to look at those things that we could do that would tie in some of the latest research in managing people and secondary trauma. And well, the first thing we looked at was we have to value them as people first. Um, we have to get to, uh, to know them. Uh, we, we do one-on-ones that aren't just case consults uh, because that's for the department. These are designed specifically to spend time with that employee once a week to further our relationship with them. Uh, that relatability piece has been instrumental. How do you know what your staff is going through? If I need to assign a complaint of, of, of an injured baby 
and I don't know that my staff member's niece just got horribly injured in a situation. I'm not being sensitive to her story and her situation, and so I'm not going to get the best outcome in an investigation, and I'm going to further provide uh, opportunity for burnout for her. Um, the other thing is uh, we, we value their family. Uh, you know, we have a rule now. Uh, staff have become so ingrained with their phone being with them, their email, even when they're not on call at night. It's there because they want to know what's, you know, it's their ability to have a little control to know what they're walking into the next day. But what happens is managers would be working at night and emailing out something. And even if it might not have been directly related to that staff member, they would read it, pick it up. They might be sitting watching a movie with their family, and all of a sudden they're thinking about work again. And, and we were just bringing them right back constantly. So we have a no email rule. We try and be as flexible as possible, allowing them to work mobily from home when they can, having flex days, help them be able to uh, have opportunities to unwind and take care of their family so that's not a worry. And then the other thing that I would just note, uh, I'll only talk about these top three, is uh, you know building an environment of emotional safety. We can't expect staff to be activating and using those higher functioning parts of the brain we speak about in trauma. They're responsible for, you know, tenacity, creativity, and all those things. If they're constantly engaged in a self-preservation survival mode, whether that's physically or in most cases in an unhealthy office environment, emotionally. So one of the things we instituted on top of that relationship building and trust is a no gossip rule. Uh, at first, it, uh, staff laughed at us uh, a little bit, thinking that's kind of silly. Um, uh, but they liked it because they didn't think they were the ones gossiping. So they were like, yeah, go get them. And over time, it didn't take long at all. They started to realize, hey, wait a minute, that's me. And we've seen an amazing uh, 180 uh, uh, turnaround on this. And staff now um, hold each other accountable for it. They hold new staff accountable. They love the safety it brings because it's also safe for them to fail. If they make a mistake, they're not afraid to admit it. They're not afraid to address it because they know they're not being talked about. So those are just a few of the top things that we've been doing, and it's really had a, a significant impact. It sounds like through through the one of the key concepts is this integration in your office of secondary traumatic stress and organizational stress. And so how do we um, address both of those and certainly some of those practices that you were talking about as to the culture and climate of the office, which then creates that emotional safety for staff to process their own secondary trauma. Um, and I guess the question I would have, and I think I'm aware of this, is that a part of your effort has also been to, quote, institutionalize secondary traumatic stress training um, upon with all new hires. Is that correct? And how do you do that if it is correct? That's correct. So even when we're doing interviews, one of the things we've instituted in our interviews is um, an emotional intelligence uh, scale questionnaire because we want to know how relatable they are because frankly it's going to be very difficult for them to have any vulnerability whatsoever if they don't have the ability or the skill set to share their emotions and understand how their emotions impact others others and how they're impacted. The other thing we do is when we hire them during uh, orientation we spend a fair amount of time on secondary trauma and we tell them you are going to hit a wall trust us on this and here's what it's going to look like uh, and that it's okay. We tie them up with mentors who mentors are the most experienced and oftentimes the most respected staff in the office. They share that story with them right away so that when it comes time and they do start to hit that wall or start to have those feelings, I can't do this, uh, they have that in the back of their mind. That's okay. That's okay. It's not uncommon. Thanks. Can you talk a little bit about 
the outcomes you've seen for the staff. I mean, you've talked about certainly the no gossip and how staff feel differently, but statistics and or just qualitative review of, of where staff are at now that you've been instituting this for at least two years and certainly over the last five trying to create a trauma-informed system. Sure. Well, I will tell you, you know, first of all, concerning um, our staff, uh, our our performance has went from five years ago being literally at the bottom of the barrel in the state to now we're consistently performing in the top percentile. We went from having very high turnover to, to almost none. In the, in the past three years, if you factor out positive turnover, promotion, someone had a baby and moved to be with grandma, we have had no one leave due to dissatisfaction or they just because they just couldn't handle it. Um, our staff are incredibly supportive of one another, devoted to this job, but also devoted to kind of statewide systemic improvements. Um, and, and probably the, the, the best way to answer that question is if you were to ask any of them about their job, they wouldn't respond negatively. They like coming to work and they like what they're doing and they're doing it well. As far as actual statistics, I can tell you that the marriage of secondary trauma trauma, uh, support with staff, as well as a focus on trauma with children and families. And you throw in that some advanced engagement, the My Team is Your Will of Engagement practice, has led us to a, par a point where we are now, uh, you know, three years later, we have uh, we've, our removals are down 50% over the last few years. You add to that, we have shortened the amount of time for ongoing cases are opened by an average of five months uh, because staff are able to engage these uh, our families a lot quicker about their trauma and help them to acknowledge, identify, and respond appropriately to it. And that combination of closing cases earlier and less removals has left us today with almost 70% of less children in care today over several years ago. That's great. Thanks, Luther. I uh, want to make one comment and would like to hear your comment on this. The uh, Department of Health and Human Services has just come out with a new vision, mission, and set of principles. And the new mission, I'll just read it, child welfare professionals will demonstrate an unwavering commitment to engage and partner with families we serve to ensure safety, permanency, and well-being through a trauma-informed approach. And one of the key principles that I think is noteworthy because of the work that certainly your office has led throughout the state, the principle is child welfare professionals will be supported through identifying and addressing secondary traumatic stress, ongoing professional development and mentoring to promote success and retention. So. I know this has been a long haul, in a sense, Luther, and having now this in the actual state of Michigan, which is a centralized system, identified just some thoughts on that as to um, what's that like to have that now included in the process of the whole state. I will just say that you know I'm I'm very proud of the efforts that the state has made in the in in the advancement we're making because ultimately you know without that in the forefront. Anything we try and do programmatically to improve outcomes for children and families is going to fail because we will not have the sustainability, we will not have the workforce resources. They're the ones who are going to implement things. And if we can't take care of them first and foremost, you know, uh, we're not going to see the improvements we need. And so, again, Michigan's taken some great steps, and I'm very uh, proud to work for the department. Thank you, Luther. So we're going to move on to Andrea and in a very different place, Colorado. And we 
our trauma center, CTAC, has been fortunate to work with both states. And, Andrea, can you just uh, speak for a second to remind everybody about the size of Larimer County and um, just one or two key demographic uh, stats? Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, Colorado is a county-run state, so it gives us some flexibility for initiatives and trying different things. Um, our total population is about 316, or uh, 316,000. That was back in 2013. Geographically, we border Wyoming. So uh, to the west, we have some mountains. To the east, it's rural farm community. And the middle is urban, so Fort Collins, Loveland, Estes. And our division, so that's just uh, children, youth, and families, is about 140 staff. So our director is Jim Drendel. And we are a differential response county, so we have two tracks to respond when we get a report. We can do family assessment response or high-risk assessment. We really center around family engagement, group supervision, uh, safety organized practice, and we've worked with Sue Laura Bach, Sonia Parker, uh, Phil Dector, Andrew Tanell, with a large focus on decreasing congregate care and increasing kin supports, as well as serving children within their own homes. Great. Thanks. Could you talk about your own county's effort, and certainly yours as one of the leaders in this, in terms of becoming interested in secondary traumatic stress? and kind of contextualize that in maybe a larger effort to become trauma-informed. Right, okay. So um, as a caseworker, secondary traumatic stress is always my passion and supporting other caseworkers and going to additional trainings to learn the impacts of secondary traumatic stress on myself, coworkers, and the organization. And we started our trauma-informed care project in June 2014, which included screening, assessment, and trauma services. This is also when I moved into the trauma care coordinator position, which is coordinating the project and training, engaging the community and staff, and providing education. Uh, we met uh, Dr. Henry back in September 2014 when he came out and did Trauma 101, and then he did a few trauma assessments for us like they do out at ETAC and uh, kind of saw the differences between traditional mental health assessments and a trauma assessment, which um, included neurodevelopmental tools, a multidisciplinary team, as well as a psychosocial interview and recommendations that really centered around building child resilience. And so we had these assessments, and then we thought, well, now what? How do we make sure we're providing those recommendations that are coming up at these assessments? So we developed a post-assessment coordination services, which are wraparound services that work with multiple systems, schools, foster parents, birth parents, course probation, providing uh, psychoeducation and helping getting the caseworker get the recommendations in place. And so our project in Larimer County is now spreading to six other counties in the state of Colorado, which hold half the child population of Colorado. So it's pretty exciting that they're seeing the impact that it's having on these kiddos and uh, want to spread it to theirs. Um, but in the midst of that, we also want to make sure that we're addressing the secondary traumatic stress of our staff. So we are running a program called Resilience Alliance. And why don't you talk about the what Resilience Alliance is, and certainly talk about then the implementation, how you've done that, how you've rolled that out. Sure. So uh, traditionally for secondary traumatic stress, what our agency did was offer debriefing groups with a therapist, and very quickly those groups became very negative. Um, Francois Mitchu would call them BMWs, bitching, moaning, and whining sessions, where people would just it, it would turn about how bad the job is, how hard the job is, and then people would leave feeling worse off than when they came in. And also, we would refer workers to the AP or tell them to do self-care. Um, so we found Resilience Alliance, and we really liked that there was a structure and goals. It was very in line with what we were trying to do for our kids um, to do with our workers and building resilience. 
Uh, Resilience Alliance is a free curriculum developed by Claude Kimpom out of New York, um, and it's supported by the NCTSN. It includes 12 modules with an additional 12 open modules for 24 total. It's uh, co-facilitated by a mental health professional as well as a resilient agency worker, and all levels of the agency are invited. So we invite our supervisors, caseworkers, support staff, people who are answering the phones, uh, administration, and it's focused on building resiliency in our staff in the areas of collaboration, um, emotional regulation, mastery, optimism. We do that through education and exercises and mindfulness. Um, we also educate staff on secondary traumatic stress, the reactions, a survival mode, reactivity, and then the curriculum calls it us versus them. So a lot of times secondary traumatic stress can put up those silos of intake versus ongoing or caseworkers versus admin. And so it's really talking about is that is this just a reaction of secondary traumatic stress and how to break that down. We did do a few changes to the um, manual, how the manual says to implement it. So um, the manual is really structured on focusing on teams and doing a resilience alliance in teams. Whereas because we wanted to break down the silos, we made it voluntary for anyone who wants to sign up and then they can sign up for whichever group they want. And that's really helped them get to know other areas of the agency and be able to um, have that relationship with other other parts or other roles. Um, we also, the curriculum calls for once a week. Um, we felt like that may be too overwhelming for staff, so we moved it to every other week. And they're one-hour groups. We have, uh, we provide lunch and then also trauma training hours. So as an agency, we said that all staff have to have 20 hours minimum of trauma training, so resilience science is one option for them to do that. Um, even though we made them voluntary, we had 60 out of 129 staff sign up, so it really showed us and spoke volumes that people wanted this and people were interested in this. We initially rolled out with four groups of 15 people each, and then about six months later, there was such interest and excitement for this program that we started three more groups, and our, actually our community mental health wanted to run a group too, so I helped co-facilitate a group for our community mental health for their therapists. At the end of the 24 modules, there is an uproar from staff saying, we need this, don't take this from us. This is one way that we're able to stay grounded and be able to keep in this work. So we just, we decided that we're going to just continue the group and start over with the modules and have kind of an open enrollment period to include new staff so they could, the resilient staff members could share experiences and um, share their experiences with the newer staff. And from a quantitative and qualitative outcome for staff, um, can you share some results? Yeah, so what we've seen, one of the biggest things we've seen is a change in the agency culture. So um, one member said that, but down in the cubicle area with all the caseworkers, it used to be really negative and talking about how difficult the job is and how difficult the work is and how they don't like this person or that person. Whereas now it's negativity is more noticed um, as that person rather than the norm. So because it's voluntary, we don't have all the staff um, signed up. There is one or two still uh, negative Nancy's kind of down there, but it's most more noticed that this is person who's really struggling with the job and having maybe a reactive day. So it's also building empathy between the different levels and different teams and roles and functions. So we have an example of a, a 
DDM and some of our supervisors who attended, and they were talking about getting a complaint from a family, and the father was just screaming and yelling and really uh, upset, and he said that he could feel his own reactivity kind of coming up and uh, heart racing and kind of getting tense. And so for caseworkers to hear that, that we're all kind of struggling with this at different levels in different ways, or to hear from support staff that they're having their own reactions with maybe not a ton of training around social work, but reading through these reports and having a reaction to the secondary traumatic stress, it really has built empathy across all the different roles in our agency. And also we've seen the recognition of reactivity, isolation, and survival mode in themselves and their co-workers. So when somebody is a little bit more reactive or starts isolating, they can have more empathy or maybe reach out to that person and also noticing it in themselves. We developed a buddy system uh, in our group, so people who kind of live or work next to each other are able to check in with each other of what they're working on for those two weeks. So we always do a takeaway, whether it's try to do a mindfulness exercise or um, we had an example of a buddy system. One, one girl just wanted to leave her desk. That was her little, her tiny bit of something she could do for self-care. She didn't found she wasn't leaving her desk, and then her buddy was wanted to make personal phone calls. She wasn't calling people back. So they would be checking in on each other and where they're at on their two little goals that they made for themselves. Um, another thing we've seen is our veteran workers offering support and tips and ideas for the newer workers. That's one of the biggest things that group members have said is the curriculum creates a really nice structure, but for a newer worker who's just starting to come in and hear from somebody who's been here 10 years of ways they've been able to manage the job and the stress to be able to um, start taking some of those tips and implementing them for themselves. We have a number of partner agencies also that are wanting to implement Resilience Alliance, so Community Mental Health, uh, Lutheran Family Services, which is a CPA, uh, Turning Point, which is a residential agency that provides some in-home services for us, and Matthew's House, who provides transition and wraparound services, also want to start their own groups after we um, started them in Larimer. Um, some turnover statistics for the first 12 groups, for people who are in the group, we had a 5% turnover, and people not in a group, we had a 29% turnover rate. That's for the first 12 groups. For the full curriculum, 24 groups, people who were in a group had a 16.6% turnover, and people who were not in the group had a 37.7% turnover. And as we all know, and Luther touched on, is that uh, improved turnover is linked with more improved child welfare outcomes for permanency, safety, and well-being. Very exciting, Andrea. Very exciting. Thank you. Any final thoughts as you reflect on all that you've done in Colorado to address secondary traumatic stress, organizational stress that um, you as a leader in this take forward as the next steps? Yeah, well, it's very exciting. And I think also we've seen a lot of results for our children just in the um, with our trauma-informed care project is that caseworkers who have gone through this program have a better understanding of what's going on in the client's brains and bodies when they understand what's going on in themselves. So we do a lot of parallel process and examples in these groups. And then uh, for the last 12 months, we've had 94% um, of our children are remain home goals. And then our average return home is four months. So kids who are placed are average returned home um, at four months. And then um, average daily number of children in foster care is 145. And we're also, in, in this project with the seven counties, we're looking at a larger evaluation of the whole trauma project using a multi-rater child functioning measure called the TOP, um, Treatment Outcome Package developed by 
Dr. Krauss, and this will hopefully help report out on child functioning and changes over time. And so it's going to be hard to kind of say this, this program or this program really had an impact on um, our outcomes, but more of the bigger trauma project with Resilience Alliance in there. And it's been exciting, too, to see Resilience Alliance hopefully spread to the other six counties. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're starting the initial meetings to do that. Thanks, Andrea. Luther, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I don't at this time. Thank you. All right. Well, it's been an honor to work with both of your agencies and specifically each of you as people committed, dedicated to the well-being of our children and certainly the safety um, of families. And so with that, um, thank you for your tremendous efforts and leadership and passion uh, to support our workers and ultimately to support the safety and well-being of our children. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about Jim Henry's group, CTAC, the Children's Trauma Assessment Center at Western Michigan University, by visiting their website at wmich.edu slash trauma center. On the webpage for this podcast, we're going to put up some other resources about secondary traumatic stress. Just go to childwelfare.gov and search podcasts. We'll put up a link to an Information Gateway publication on developing a trauma-informed child welfare system along with a direct link to the Trauma-Informed Practice web section. That web section has reports and research, information on screening and assessment, along with resources from agencies and organizations across the country, including resources you can provide to caregivers and families. As always, if you have any questions on finding information or resources to help you improve positive outcomes, reach out to Child Welfare Information Gateway at info at childwelfare.gov or check out Information Gateway for yourself at childwelfare.gov. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so just search Child Welfare Information Gateway. Thanks so much for being a part of this community and listening. So for now, I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next time on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau. 